Take your Bibles, please, if you would, and turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. In the book of Ecclesiastes, we are trying to do exactly what we sang about this morning, to keep a healthy perspective on life, to always turn our eyes towards Jesus, the author, finisher of our faith, to wrestle with the realities of life and good times and even in prosperous times and times of blessing, and to maintain a perspective that everything under the sun is temporal at best, and a better day is coming. A better day in which all of the toil and struggle and vanity and vexation of spirit that is entailed in life under the sun is finally vanquished, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And there's one thing to sing about that in a, in a worship service, but a whole other matter to maintain that perspective throughout the course of your life. We come to the book of Ecclesiastes, and we find the writer, the Koheleth, the convener of the assembly, speaking to the things that matter most. And he's gone through this period in his life where he's trying to sort through the reality of life under the sun. He's trying to make sense of everything that happens in life, and he's trying to find some, some sense of contentment and happiness. And yet, under the sun is the key term in all of that. He's trying to do it outside of, of God, to, to put his faith aside, if, if only for a minute, and try and work it out all by himself. Some of us might be quite judgmental towards the Koheleth as he does this, but just look in the mirror. We do it on a regular basis. We try and make life work on our terms. We've convinced ourselves that, that we're in control, and if we can make all the right decisions, surely our life will turn out exactly the way we want it to. And then all of a sudden, life goes sideways. We're left with nothing but this vanity and vexation of spirit wondering, what happened? Well, as he works in his whole mind and as he sorts through all of this in his wisdom, in this internal dialogue, and, and, and it tries to find this contentment somewhere in life. He then gathers together an assembly of people, and, and this is his thoughts on paper, the book of Ecclesiastes, as he gathers people together and says, here's what I've learned. This is what matters. This is what life is all about. Now, if you've been with us for any length of time in our study, this is a, a, a vexing toilsome, burdensome responsibility that he has taken on. And he has some good days, and quite frankly, he has some not good days as he works through all of these things. And, and in the book of Ecclesiastes, we're introduced to, from time to time, and sometimes in just a brief section, a perspective that changes through the course of his presentation. Sometimes he plays the role of the cynic. Life is just life. You just have to get through it. Sometimes he plays the role of the hedonist. Well, if, you're, if life is just life and you just get through it, I'm going to make my own way through life, and I'm just going to enjoy everything I possibly can. I am going to do thus and such and find my happiness there. But I think overall, in the book of Ecclesiastes, this convener of the assembly, this teacher, this philosopher, if you would, is playing the role of apologist. And in his own mind, he's sorting through things and, and saying, this doesn't work, and let me tell you why. Almost using that, that, that infinite and absurdum kind of argument, if in fact this is true, 
this is where it ends up. And it doesn't always end in a good place for this convener of the assembly. And yet every once in a while get these flashes of brilliance in which he just says it so plain and clear, and the text this morning is one of those texts. I want you to know that what we study this morning is probably important even for the unbelieving world and community. And yet for the believing community, we must somehow live our lives different than the rest of the world. And yet, I don't know about you, I, I find myself trapped in this world sometimes and, and falling prey to some of the very same things that, that the writer is wrestling and struggling through. And in a couple of ways this morning, I'll be a little transparent and tell you how that works out in my own life and some of my own challenges. But I want you to know that you can't get discouraged with the book of Ecclesiastes. As difficult as it is to understand, as difficult as it is to interpret, as the language is is unclear in some passages of the text, sometimes it crystallizes in such a way that it's an aha kind of moment. I believe that this next section is one of those things. So this convener of the assembly, the writer of Ecclesiastes, asked himself a particular question, what does a man gain by all of the toil at which he toils under the sun? What is life all about, and what is it that results from life? What is it that buys happiness and contentment? Why am I here, and where am I going? Those questions have been asked from the beginning of time. And those questions are asked by all of us in one form or another. Why am I here and where am I going? And those questions are more difficult in dark days, but no less difficult in times of blessing. Because in the end of the day, another day comes, and the fate of all of us remains the same. So as he works through all of this, seeking to find an answer to this question, he's now gathered together everybody who will listen after he's worked through probably over a period of years, if not decades, his challenges to try and figure out life. And he says, this is what I've learned. Pay attention. And he puts his thoughts into language and for us, his thoughts into words. And they are good words indeed. Father, may you take these words. May you use them in our lives. May you grant us a perspective. May you show us where we've gone wrong. And in the end of the day, may you teach us the only lesson put forward in the book of Ecclesiastes. Teach us and show us how to fear God and keep His commandments. That's the essence of life. We look for it in so many other ways and so many other areas. And we look at other people as having gotten it all wrong and yet look in the mirror and fail to realize we too have fallen prey to the role of the cynic, to the hedonist, and in rare times, Father, the apologist who looks at life through clear lenses and understands what matters most. May we see that this morning. May you encourage us this morning. May you bless us this morning. May you give us grateful hearts, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
I want to read a lengthy passage of Scripture. You can follow along in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. It'll pull all of the context of what he writes together, but it is a number of verses, and it's always good to read the Scripture together. In Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 1, the writer says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this was also vanity. And I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks, and I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who were before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delights of the children of man. So I became great and surpassed all that were before me in Jerusalem, and also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all of my toil, and this was my reward for all of my toil." Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. And then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. And I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also was vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance." seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten, how the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. I hated all my toil in which I toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool." Yet he will be master of all for which I have toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil." What is a man from all of his toil and striving with which he toils beneath the sun? For all of his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation, and even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There's nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. 
This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from Him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For the one who pleases God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, He has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Again, if you've been with us in our study in the first 11 verses, the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes rehearses his life, his accomplishments, and his achievements. I believe the author to be Solomon, and we can go back into the first Kings and read that Solomon was blessed with wisdom more than anyone before him in Jerusalem. And now we find in the midst of his wisdom, he has achieved a, a stature in society, a, 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 a pinnacle of success that he was more wise and more wealthy and had more than anyone else in Jerusalem who had been before him. And he gets to the point of looking at all that he'd accomplished, and as he looks out over his houses and his gardens and his possessions and his singers and all of the things, the good things that life has to offer, he says in verse 10 that he found pleasure in all of his toil. It is really important for us to understand in the book of Ecclesiastes And some of us make this dire mistake of saying nothing in life brings any kind of pleasure. It's just a drudgery. That is not what God has taught us in Scripture. There are things in life. There are things that come by way of achievement. There are the niceties of life that we can take pleasure in. And for a season, they grant a sense of happiness and satisfaction, even a little bit of contentment. And yet at the same time, it is not the ultimate. It will never answer the biggest questions of life. And no matter how you might come to the conclusion of your life, the Koheleth, the Ecclesiastes, the writer of the text says, while there was pleasure and much of what I achieved and accomplished, it didn't answer the biggest questions of life. Who am I and where am I going? there was still something missing. And he concludes that after all of this pursuit, he had just wasted his time. That is the cynic speaking as a result of his hedonistic tendencies. Verse 11, I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it, even though I had pleasure in it. And behold, It was all vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. There was no lasting contentment. It didn't get me to the next day. It didn't take care of the troubles of tomorrow. It didn't set this this quietness about my spirit that I could live out my days in, in satisfaction. I was still under this notion, this gnawing reality that there must be something more. This can't be it. Of course it's not it. That's the whole purpose of him sharing this toil that he had been through. Ian Proven in his commentary says, gladness of heart, joy, pleasure. It's not that these things are not good in themselves in Ecclesiastes, yet Kolath has discovered that the pursuit of them with a hope of gain, eternal gain, contentment if you would, is just as pointless as the pursuit of wisdom and knowledge for that purpose. It came up short. It just wasn't enough. And I know I have some cynics here this morning who will say, but it'd be enough for me. Why can't I have a little bit of what they have? 
I'd appreciate it. How come I just can't have a, a fraction of what they have? I would certainly keep it in perspective, liar. That's why he writes the book. We're never satisfied with the things under the sun because the desires that God has placed us or placed in us cannot be satisfied under the sun. Our desires placed in us through the hand of creation and the author of all things can only be satisfied in Him. It can't answer the question, who am I? Well, I'm this. I'm Dr. So-and-so. I'm at… Who cares? Well, I am… Who cares? There are still these nagging issues, and he's going to talk about the reality of those as he continues down through this text. It is fleeting indeed. He discovered that although we pursue happiness in every corner of our life, in the same corners lurks the darkness of diminishing returns. That's not it. I tried this, and I tried this, and I did this, and I did this, and I'm still looking. That's not it. He says in verse 12, so I I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. A very difficult verse by way of interpretation. So he says, now I I moved away from the hedonism, if you would, and and I'm trying to figure this out with my wisdom. Is, is Is it better to be wise or to be a fool? Then he says, for what can the man do who comes after the king? And there's many interpretations about what that really means, but perhaps what he's saying is, if indeed he achieved all or more than all that were before him in Jerusalem, he's saying, the next guy's going to have nothing on me. I've, I've unturned every stone. I've made it as clear as I could be. There's nothing else to be discovered or to be found, only what has already been done. Don't you remember that that's exactly what he said early on in the text in his introduction in chapter 1? There's nothing new under the heavens. Life just seems to cycle and cycle and cycle and cycle. I've been there. I've done it. I'm on the top of the heap. What's the king going to do? Who comes after me? There are no other questions to be answered. He says in verse 13, then I saw that there's more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there's more gain in light than in darkness. He comes to the conclusion that wisdom is valuable. In fact, his wisdom was a special gift of God granted to him as he asked for that from God Almighty. And as he looks out at this world, and as he looks at all of his things, and as he looks at all of his accomplishments, he is not discounting that wisdom is not good, it's not beneficial. <coughs> he's, not, he's not saying that it's unprofitable necessarily, but he is saying that it's better than folly, stupidity, carelessness, unplanning. No point in pursuit of anything under the… Well, wisdom certainly better than that, and then he, he includes a, an ancient proverb in there, there's more gain in light than in darkness. Well, well why is that? Well, if you have to ask, ask that question, I haven't been paying attention. But he explains why there's more value in light than darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head. He's been enlightened. 
It's the capacity and the ability to think through and to, to look ahead and to understand the deeper issues of life and, and the deeper truths. But the fool walks in darkness. They kind of bumble around. There's no sense of purpose and no sense of destiny. And, and they're making one mistake after another mistake after another mistake after another. So wisdom certainly is better. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to them all. Now, what you suppose that event would be? You see, whether you're stumbling and bumbling through life, or you've charted a path and have been careful and calculating, the same fate awaits every single one of us. The scriptures say it this way, it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that the judgment. That's exactly what he says as he concludes in chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. We all end up the same, dead, dead. And then what? As he wrestles through all of this and, and he looks at all of his life's work, he says, then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why that have, then have I been so very wise? This isn't an anti-wisdom text, but he says, this just isn't fair. I did it the right way, and I used my wisdom, and I worked hard, and this bumbling fool over here did nothing, and yet we get the same thing in the end. Doesn't just, it just doesn't seem right. It is never going to be right because there's nothing under the sun that can give lasting satisfaction answering the biggest issues in life. See, the key to happiness and joy and contentment isn't in your accomplishments. It isn't something else, and that's the, the message that he's communicating to those that he's gathered together. He's not saying, I wish I lived my life as a fool. He knows the consequences of that. But, but he does say, listen, I've, I've worked so hard and I've accomplished so much, and yet I'm just as dead as the, the fool in and, and the end of the day. What's the point in all that? And I said in my heart, this is also vanity. How are you living your life? Some of you are bumbling through life, mistake after mistake after mistake, and somehow you believe that ignorance is bliss, and if I don't know, I won't be responsible. Well, that's simply not true. Others, and I fall into this category, are very calculating. I have a plan, and I work my plan, and I'm careful with that plan, and, 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 and I'm charting my path, and, and I'm going to do it with all my heart, and this is what I want to accomplish, and yet in the end, does all of that bring me? Again, it's not a matter of choosing foolishness over wisdom. It's a matter of where that wisdom takes you. It's a matter of where your conclusions lie. It's a matter of what's important to you and your perspective in life. For both of those, the wise and the fool, there's no enduring remembrance seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. Well, let's just go home. What a depressing book. <laughs> They're not going to remember you anyhow. 
not your achievements, not your accomplishments, not what you have. You're going to be a vapor here today and gone tomorrow. And nobody cares when you're gone. Boy, that's harsh. That's this critical. You mean I didn't matter? Of course you mattered, but not in the way that you think. Oh, this world can't exist without me. It'll be fine, thank you. In fact, they'll so prove that they can live without you that they won't even remember your name or anything that you did. And they'll be the inheritor of whatever you've left behind. This is the depression that comes to this Koheleth because he realizes, wait a second, what was the point of this exercise? Why was I, why was I even doing this? I'm not even going to be remembered as the wise king in Jerusalem over Israel who was greater than all that were before him. Nobody cares once I'm gone. Now, why would he be worried about that? Listen carefully. Particularly in our Western civilization, we've made it an art to stave off thinking about our mortality and to occupy our minds in every waking moment so that we don't even give any consideration that our days are numbered and then it's over. We don't want to deal with that. We don't want to live with that. We want to eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, but we don't want to think about that. So we'll consume ourselves with all kinds of other things. And if you do that, you will get the same results over and over and over. And if you remember, we looked at a verse further on in the text, and what you will get is a handful of nothing over and over and over see all of these things that he's writing and all of these things that have come to him and, and all of these things that he's wrestling with will lead him to his ultimate conclusion, but he does conclude how the wise dies just like the fool. In the end of the day, when we die, I am no different than the fool. So what was the point of all of this? Again, please, you compare this with the teaching of the Old Testament. He is not anti-wisdom. He's not talking about don't work hard. He's not talking about don't, don't make something of your life. He's not talking about achievements don't matter. He's not saying that at all. He's trying to tell us, keep them in the right perspective. And that's what gets us every single time. Under the sun. How the wise dies just like the fool. The reality is that if death doesn't inform the way you live, then death is something that we're pretending exists. We don't really believe it. And if we believe that we're all going to die, and if we believe that it's appointed by God, and if we believe that no one's guaranteed another day, what does today mean? What is the point of today? What should I be doing today? So in another conclusion, he says in the harshest way since the beginning of the book, so I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Where did the grief come from? The grief came because he thought it would answer the biggest questions of life, and it didn't. And after all of that energy and after all of that toil, he's in the same place that he started. What's the point? of all of this. That's why he grieved. What's the point? I just, 
I just immersed my life in all of this, and no one is even going to remember. They'll not even care about me. What is the point of all of this? Verse 18, so I hated all my toil, in which I toil under the sun, and all my hard labor, and all my hard thinking, and my, and my wisdom, and, and all that I pursued under the sun. I, I hated it, seeing that I must leave it to the man who comes after me. Oh, there's the catch right there. I must leave it to the man who comes after me. Now, I've amassed all of this stuff, and I've got to leave it to some idiot. It's a little depressed about that. Why? Well, he'll explain to us. And who knows, the one who comes after me, whether he'll be a wise or a fool. Is he going to appreciate all of this? Is he going to understand all that I put into this life? Or is he just to bumble through life and, and squander whatever it is that I leave behind? Yet, I'll be gone, and he will be the master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. What a waste of time. I can't even guarantee my legacy. I can't even guarantee that all of the hard work that I put into life will profit the next generation. I don't know if the next guy that comes along is wise or a bumbling fool, an idiot. He says, boy, there's an emptiness to that. They're not going to remember me. They're going to squander all my stuff. So what is the point? So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill, describing himself, must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. And conversely, will not appreciate it. And he said, this is vanity, and this is a great evil. Why would God give to someone else my life's work, especially if he's a fool? Do you hear the language throughout this whole text? The, the Koheleth, the convener of the assembly, the philosopher, the teacher, the pundit, the prophet, the preacher… Is wrestling with whether or not his life counts. He's wrestling with whether or not all that he'd accomplished mattered. He's pondering the deepest questions of life, including his morbidity, and, and he's coming to this conclusion, what is the point? Why did I toil and strive under the sun? What was the point? And then he says, for all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. This is critically important for the one who has accomplished. You see, the more that he amassed and the more that he achieved, the more he was envied by the masses. Those angry glances and those critical tones and, and, and those cutting cutting remarks about, oh, Mr. Big Shot there, he thinks he's all of that. But there's a reverse side to that as well. The more you have, the more you have to worry about. 
The more stuff, the more you have to keep track of. The more accomplishments, the more you have to worry about the guy who comes after you who is bigger and brighter and faster and stronger. He's saying, listen, it's like I'm on a treadmill. And I get, get ahead and I get ahead and I get ahead and I get ahead and I've accomplished and I've achieved and I've done all of these things. And now I have to maintain all of these things so I have to turn up the speed on the treadmill and go a little bit faster. And, and all of these struggles and pressures and questions come to my mind and, and some vexation. This is hard work, not just to amass, but, but to then appreciate and to maintain what you've amassed. And then he says this, even in the night his heart does not rest thinking about what he has to do tomorrow. And all of this stuff that comes when he realizes he can't take it with him. Some of you are closer to this day than others. You watch the calendar, the graying of the hair, the change in the lines in your face. And you're reminded a little bit more every single day that you will not live forever. And you begin to say, okay, so so what's the point? And even at night, we get a little restless about tomorrow and about our children, about our children's children. Let me me tell you, I'm, I'm not done yet. I don't think I will stop saying, open your Bibles, please, until I stand in the presence of the King. I'm not as young as I used to be. And I know I've poured my heart and soul into life and ministry and people's lives for 40 years now, 21 here at First Baptist Church. And sometimes I wonder, who's on deck? What are they going to do with everything that we've toiled for these last 21 years? I know you don't think like that, right? Can I trust them? I better hang on. I better stick around, but sooner or later, dead. Keeps you up at night. You worry. Anxiety overtakes your mind. You're thinking about things that you cannot control. In essence, that's the reality. See, the Colath, more than any of us, had great control over his life and the events of his life. But in the end of the day, that control only goes so far. And then he realizes there are some things that he can't control at all. Again, Proven says only God has ultimate control even though mortals may briefly possess some degree of it. But even the degree of control that we have ends when our life is required of us, and we must realize that there is something bigger than us and yield to that control. I look at this text, and I look at Western civilization, and I look at the United States in particular, where you can be anything you want and achieve anything you want and and reach the pinnacle of whatever it is you're seeking to reach. And I find the same deadness and the same sadness in the realities that stuff is stuff, and you're not as in control as you think you are. 
As I reflect upon this, as you know, I'm an avid reader. I've been reading a secular book by an author called Douglas Murray. It's a book that was put out this year, and it's called and entitled The War on the West, and it's a reflection on Western civilization. He's a British philosopher, historian, and as he writes in the context of, of this book, as he commentates on the, the social realities of life, he is looking at a culture that's not distinctly Christian, but a culture that has pursued the material possessions of life, thinking that somehow that will somehow bring satisfaction and happiness to their life. And as he reflects on some of the things that's happened, he writes in this, in this social commentary, is one of the saddest realizations we have as a species, not just that everything is transitory, including life, but that everything, particularly everything we love and into which our love has been poured, is fragile. We don't, we don't know what's going to happen to that. Let me tell you the backstory of Douglas Murray. He was raised in a Christian home in the Anglican faith. As a part of Western civilization, he grew a little cynical towards the Christian faith, at least how it was being practiced, and the people that he would go to church with. And in his later 20s, he renounced his Christianity and now labels himself as a Christian atheist. What? What are you talking about? Listen carefully. He says, I love many of the principles of the Christian faith. I just don't have any time for Christianity. What a sad reality that is. And yet at the same time, I've gleaned some things from his, his book that are critically important to this text. And bear with me a little bit as I read some of these things that, that he works through in the context of Western civilization. One of the first things that he says as he talks about life being transitory in nature, he talks about our achievements and, and, and all the stuff that we accumulate that we give to the next generation, and he says, these are gifts from humans to all humankind. You see, when you give up on Christianity, you know any longer see any good and perfect gift coming down from God the Father who doesn't change. There's got to be another source of those gifts, and he, and he sees it in the realm of, of humanity and passing on to this next generation, not just our stuff, but the wisdom that we gained. And what he does then is go on this, I believe, tirade, a healthy one, <laughs> for the next several pages in this, this social commentary and he talks about gratitude. And he says the number one problem in Western civilization is nobody's happy or thankful for what they have. And they're always, sound familiar to you? Striving after the wind. This is Ecclesiastes. As Murray writes this, he says, without an ability to feel gratitude, all of human life and human experience is a marketplace of blame where people tear up the landscape of the past and the present, hoping to find other people to blame and upon which they can transfer their frustrations. You robbed me of what was rightfully mine. Without gratitude, the prevailing attitudes of life are blame and resentment that is so characteristic of our politics and every other thing today. Because if you do not feel gratitude for anything that has been passed on to you, 
then all you feel is bitterness over what you didn't get. Oh, that, that's just like hitting the nail on the head, isn't it? <laughs> if I could only have, Solomon says, I had it all. There's no other questions to ask. Pay attention to what I have to say, and yet we still convince ourselves. He says, life without gratitude is not a life lived properly. It is life that's lived off kilter, one in which, incapable of realizing what you have to be thankful for, you are left with nothing but your resentments and be contented by nothing but revenge. Have you ever run across these miserable people who want to make everyone around them miserable? That's the people he's talking about. Now, remember, he's a Christian atheist. Take this in the right way. So are some of you. You want all the good parts of Christianity. But you don't want all of Christianity. You want everything that Christianity has to offer, nothing that Christianity demands. You want a Christianity that is preached in seeker churches today that promises that you can have your best life now, and if you just have enough faith, they'll pour money all over you, and you can have all the dreams of your heart, but that is not the Christianity of the Bible. That's a Christian atheist, just like Douglas Murray. You see, you can't have all of Christianity without Christ. You can't have all of anything without God. And our world has convinced us that if we can just pursue and achieve, everything is going to be okay, and it's a lie. And some of you are living that lie. I told you a couple of weeks ago, sorting through the moronic statements on social media on the Dobbs decision from the Supreme Court, and I said, stop pretending. You're in or you're out. There's no such thing as a Christian atheist. But that's what we want. We want all the blessings and the benefits of Christianity, but leave me alone. I'm going to make my own way and my own mark under the sun. That is the writer. That is Ecclesiastes. And then a fleeting moment of clarity. He gets to the heart of the message, verse 24. There's nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. I love how he says that. Not enjoyment in his stuff, not enjoyment in his lot in life, not enjoyment in his achievements and accomplishments, even finding enjoyment in the difficult, toiling times of life. There's a place that we can go even in the worst of times that we can eat and drink and find contentment and joy even in our struggles. He says, this also I saw is from the hand of God. It's the way He made us. This is the way it needs to be. For apart from Him, He asked the rhetorical question, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? He says, I had more than all of you. Apart from God, it was a handful of nothing, a handful of empty. And I need to learn 
as Paul said in one of his final letters, how, how to abound and how to be at the bottom of the well and just enjoy the good things in life and take pleasure in my toil, for God has been good. Anyone else struggle with that perspective? But I don't. Stop. Isn't God good when you're walking in the darkness? Isn't God good even if you don't have as much as the next person? Isn't God good even though you have no control over your life and future? Isn't God been Hasn't God been good to us in spite of our challenges and maybe the season that you're living in right now? Have we missed the reality that's the simple things in life that give us some of the greatest pleasure because we realize it is from the hand of God? Lord, give us this day our daily bread. That's enough. That's never enough for us, is it? Blaise Pascal, French philosopher and mathematician. Perhaps you've seen this quote. It's in a number of different forms. It's something that is so descriptive of Western civilization, perhaps your heart this morning. All of humanity's problems stems from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone with their thoughts. What did he mean by that? He said, do not be like the coalette pursuing all of these things. When you're sitting alone at home in your room, count your blessings. But you don't understand what he's saying when you're alone in your room at night. Without the distractions, without the the business that you've been about, without the passions of your heart, for most in Western civilization, for many Christians today, we're left with boredom and depression and sadness and sorrow and despair. There must be something more. We still haven't learned that there's nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Where's that enjoyment found? In God alone. Remember C.S. Lewis, if I find myself these desires that this world cannot provide for, I begin to realize that I am created for a different world. He's getting around to the truth. It's finally dawning on him, but it never seems to dawn on us. Isn't it funny how we quote all of the time, this notion of this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. I can't get my car started. My coworker's just a jerk. See, we know it, but we live like Christian atheists. You know what's good for your soul, for my soul? sit on my front porch and just look out into the woods, to the field and over the pond and say, wow, that's beautiful. God has allowed me to enjoy this, to feel a cool breeze. Thank you. Thank you, God, for that cool breeze. 
It's the simple things in life that define whether or not we understand and get it. And although we can say this is the day that the Lord has made, let us rejoice and be glad in it. It's a Christianese verse from Christian atheists who don't believe it for a second. But if in the solitude of life in your room alone you can grasp this truth, you can say, isn't God amazing? And He's blessed me abundantly, and He's good all the time. That's the point of the book of Ecclesiastes. Take the rest. Just eat and drink and find joy in life under the sun, knowing that a better day is coming because this is from the hand of God. He says, for the one who pleases God, he's given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he's given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases. This is also vanity and striving after the wind. You notice how he separates these two kinds of people? The sinner is busy doing all the things that he was busy doing and not appreciating it. But to the one who pleases God, who has been given wisdom and knowledge, he has also received joy. And even then, it's hard to understand. The biblical view of life is that it's designed to be lived in humility and obedience before God, accepting the limitations that are in place on us and finding joy and satisfaction in the ordinary things of life, even a hard day's work, because this is from the hand of God. Time and time again in the text, he brings us back to this theme, and in chapter 8 he says, and I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and to drink and to be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given under the sun. And just like you, I'm still pursuing that joy. And sometimes I get it, and sometimes I don't. And sometimes I live, this is the day the Lord has made, let us rejoice. And sometimes I'm that Christian atheist who says there must be something more. In the quietness of my room, based on the truth of God's Word, I can rest in the fact that I'm a child of the King, and whatever He gives me is good. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Boy, if we could only live that every single day. He bears His soul. He teaches us the truth, and He says, you know, as hard as life is, God is still good. May you know that today in the depths of your heart for His glory alone. Thank You, Father, for truth that is cutting and painful for us, yet freeing the path to joy. In the midst of life in good times and in bad, whether we eat or drink, whether we have much or little, whether things are going our way or apparently not, may we find our rest in You. 
May we live our lives believing that everything's going to be okay. And may we learn to fear God and keep His commandments. The essence of life, may it be so. May it start with me, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.